0: Welcome to a higher branch, a source of practical and powerful information for busy people dedicated to boosting their personal health and professional performance. I'm your host Sam McCall. Hello and welcome to another episode of A Higher Branch where we continue with our final episode on the seven S's that are essential to your survival. And I urge you to go back and listen to each and every episode. The first one was on sustenance as a nutrition. The second one was on starvation as in fasting. Third, sleep. Fourth, strength. Fifth, Sunshine. Last week we covered an incredible topic on socializing, which is the sixth S. Those first six S's have all been framed in the positive, what you need to do. Today's final S is what you need to manage. And it's all about stress. And again, joining me for this final episode on this series, which has been enjoyed by so many people, is Dr. Scott Wustenberg. Scott, welcome again to a high branch podcast.
1: Hi, Sam. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Now, a lot of people are really enjoying your (laughs) (laughs) fast-talking, no-nonsense, and we're getting a lot of positive feedback by email. From people that are enjoying this series, I say it's memorable and really want to thank you for your generosity with sharing this information. You've acquired this information over many days, weeks, months, and years of reading and researching. I know you're totally obsessive about health and wellness, and you've got a great team there at Advanced Rehab doing an incredible job. The tests that you and I have done alone really has revolutionized my 24-hour cycle And so I hope for everyone that's listening that they've gotten something out of the last six episodes. But today we're going to cover the topic of stress, which is really something, Scott, that you and I, you zoned in on it with me. You said, you know what? The biggest issue that you need to manage is your response to stress.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Stress, I think, is a largely misunderstood concept as well. And again, I want to thank you and thank everyone who's listened. I hope you really did uh, get something out of it. And it, it was enjoyable to be here for the previous six episodes. Stress is always viewed as a negative. We kind of talk about it as this harbinger of doom, a monster in the background. While I do talk about stress in that way, I also want people to understand that without stress, without stimulus, because stress is actually stimuli. And to some degree, it's our value judgment, our viewpoint in here as to how it will affect us. And so what I've learned clinically is people will become stressed and dysfunctional from something really positive, like winning a million dollars on the lotto. And you see these stories of people who've won a massive amount of money, And a year later, they're blowing it all and it's the worst thing that ever happened to them and they're miserable and they're telling all the bad stories. To my mind, you know, having a million dollars that you didn't have to work for doesn't sound like such a bad thing. You know, how could that be stressful? But for some people it is. So stress, as much as anything, apart from the fact that it is stimuli and it's stimuli that we have to respond to, stress is based upon your value judgment. It's upon your learned behaviors that have come from your parents, your greater family, your society at large, and it's built upon your internal resilience clocks, as we spoke about with socialization, etc. If you have a community group, a group of people that you can rely on to support you, most things are not as hard to deal with. If you don't have supports in the background, new stimuli coming in will often be viewed as a threat. So that's where we hear this concept of stress being a negative, a bad thing for us. But if I take away stimuli to you and you have nothing, I put you in a blank room with nothing, there's no light, there's no sound, there's no anything, your brain will find that horrific. That is something your brain does not like. So no stimulus is horribly stressful for us. And it's actually part and parcel of torture. Now, the benefit of that sort of torture is it doesn't really count because it's in the gray area, because it doesn't leave a physical mark on the body and Torture is defined as leaving physical marks like someone punching you in the face and bruising you. The brain, however, does not like being disconnected from stimuli. It doesn't know how to deal with the world. So again, from that most basic essence, we have to reframe stress and start seeing it in a more positive, without stress sort of manner, we don't do well. And therefore we have to change our responses to all the stimuli and stop taking it in a personal sense. Oh, that thing is out to get me. It's not, it's just a stimuli. You can modify yourself. You can change your behaviors. You can change how you see it and it won't do you the same harm as if you see it as a fear based response. Now,
0: again, It's it's our reaction then to the stimuli
1: correct it's absolutely that's
0: that value judgement so most people view physical stress as positive
1: i.e. exercise absolutely it's technically a hormetic action so hormesis is a small amount of a stress or a poison a damaging agent that is adapting you to your next increase in growth. When we do exercise, we are micro-damaging our muscles to try and make our system adapt to grow ourselves into a better form. That is exactly my concept, and you summed it up perfectly there. Without that stimuli, your body becomes distressed. It gets smaller. It becomes less complicated, and it doesn't do
0: as well. So really then on the scale of stimuli, whether it's physical, mental, or emotional, and we'll talk about those three different stresses, seems to me just like that spectrum of that test that I did with you on how many antibodies I have. You had the red extreme on one side high, the red extreme, and then there was this sweet spot in the middle, which is the green part. So stress isn't the absence of stimuli. Correct. It's the right amount of stimuli. For
1: growth. And that's exactly it. When we take all the stimuli away, we become dysfunctional. When we have too much, because remember in the previous episodes that we've spoken about, we spoke about resource management. If we don't have enough resources to tolerate the amount of stimuli coming, that becomes threatening to the organism. And so the concept is always... If we have ourselves physically in balance, emotionally spiritually in balance, we have the skills, the tools and the resources to meet the stimuli, the challenge coming at us. So sometimes your body might be perfectly capable, such as the classic one, go back to the Olympics, I don't know, two, three, four ago, and there was the rowing crew, and the rower sat down in the middle of the boat when they were so far ahead of everyone. Her body was capable, her mind wasn't. She just stopped at that moment in time. And so again, at that moment, the resource that was missing to meet the stimuli was a neurocognitive thing, not that she wasn't physically trained or muscular enough or enough gas in the tank, the heart, et cetera. Her mind just stopped, I can't do this anymore. And so everything is about knowing how to get the resources to meet the challenge that's coming at you to tolerate the stress. Sometimes it is that you haven't been taught how to think effectively, to actually deal with the oncoming threat that's at you. Right. And that's one of the reasons why we train. We train physically. I'm going to learn to run to do a marathon. Well, I've never done a marathon, so I can't do it at this moment. If I went out and tried to do it today, my physical body and my mental body would probably not be able to handle it. So I will do incremental things. Mentally, if a threat comes at you, if you've had no experience with it whatsoever, no one's spoken to you about it, you've been given no tools, such as a death in the family. Now, one of the problems with Australian lifestyle is there are certain things that we don't like talking about. We don't like talking about religion. We don't like talking about death. We don't talk about politics anymore. That's all bad things. We don't want to upset anyone. But if you haven't had any experience to learn how to tolerate that neuroemotional cognitive threat, when it comes at you, you have no skill set. And without that skill set, we can go to pieces.
0: Yes, Yes.
1: So there are at that moment, again, from a taking it to a more spiritual aspect, you can be threatened in that area as well and found wanting because you haven't developed your psychosocial skills, whether it's via meditation, whether it's prayer, whether it's walking on the beach and getting one with nature. Everyone will have their own tool set that's invaluable to meeting that particular area of resource. You have to train to be able to meet these things so that your value judgment is found to be acceptable to the amount of stimuli coming at you. So as I said, I don't view stress in quite the same way as most other people do. And again, I think that's because I've spent a lot of time reading and being involved in training to actually try and understand how the neuro-emotional psyche-body sort of connections come about. And, you know, maybe at some future point, I will find a stimuli that I have no skills with, and I will find it really difficult. In the grand scheme of things, the body has a series of resources. Everything's about resources. So sometimes when you're emotionally, spiritually, cognitively found wanting, You can use physical actions, including exercise, including physical entrainment, including mindfulness, physical meditation, where you put yourself in a zone. Certain supplements, including saffron or 5-HTP, St. John's Wort and Keflin. These are all physical resources that you can put into your body to actually have an effect on your neurocognitive aspects to actually tip the resource balance in your favor to meet the demand that's actually coming at you. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And
0: you mentioned a few of the supplements there. And we'll we'll talk about managing stress a little bit more specifically later, because in this podcast, I want to cover what is stress, why it's important, and then how do we manage it. And I love how you've explained how there's physical, mental, and emotional stress, but you can use the physical to actually improve your resilience, your mental and emotional resilience. And I think that's the easiest place to start. If there's someone listening at the moment and they're going through work stress, relationship stress, family stress, whatever it is. I mean, cycling through the eight areas of life that is... One of our frameworks, it's uh, love, family, work, friendship, learning, wealth, and charity. Now, each one of these areas of life has challenges, and that is a stress. In fact, the biggest stress that we're getting from our community at the moment in the last two years, which is why our podcast with Dr. Guy Winch on how to fix a broken heart is now the second most popular episode, and it's the stress of being in a relationship. So you've got, you know, relationship stress family stress work stress you know friendship stress there's uh, up and coming there possibly will be wealth stress or financial stress these are all stresses because these are the eight areas of our life that fill eight fundamental human needs but for every positive there's a negative for every yin there's a yang so we're going to be faced with stress in those eight areas of life. And those eight areas will give us physical stress, mental stress, emotional stress. And you also touched on the the spiritual, which is quite interesting, Scott, because we define health under our framework as made up of four energies, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual, spiritual being the deepest, highest frequency energy that we vibrate at. So can you tell us before I move on to why stress is important? How does it damage our body? But interestingly, you you mentioned spirituality in that as well. Can you elaborate just briefly on that before we move
1: on? To some degree, I mean, everyone's going to have their own take on what spirituality is. Uh, And so my take on it kind of comes from the fact that I'd been raised and I was christened. I was born into a Anglo-Christian society. I was christened and baptized and went through an introduction until I hit about 12. And at that moment, the pastor of my church was had up on fraud charges for his business dealings. And he was literally arrested in front of us all. And it rocked my thought process about uh, a belief in God because at that moment in time, it was wrote learned and kind of forced into me just purely by the conditioning of my family this is what we do you go to church on Sunday you go to Sunday school you learn the thing so the first thing you learn is guilt guilt (laughs) that's what I learned in the Catholic church guilt so (laughs) guilt's not a great one to learn either (laughs) but it is a great control mechanism and so I went through a down spot and one of the things that I did is I started studying many different religions. And I've looked at most of the greater tenets to some degree, and they all have a similar sort of thing. They have a trinity, they have some rules of engagement, and they drive connectedness and hope. And the biggest thing that I think that spirituality gives us as part of what we were talking about last time with the socialization and connectedness is that Without hope, which is the major resource for dealing with stress, both emotionally, spiritually, and physically. Because if you cannot hope, you cannot imagine different or better or future. And you need to have hope and you need to connect. Now, every spiritual doctrine that I've come across at the core preaches about betterment and hope and some degree of connectedness to something greater than us all. Now, for some people, that is going to be community. For some people, it is going to be God or Yahweh or Allah. I don't mind. Everyone has to come to their belief system however they want to. I have mine. I like the belief that we are connected to a greater fundamental energy, that wants the best vibration for us all to be. I don't mind what label you stick on it, but that's how I believe in things. And I think from there, we can expand to this idea that we are on a journey, each and every one of us, to be the best version of ourselves and get up each day to do that in the pursuit of helping other people and not ever harming someone intentionally. So from there, hope allows us to have the fortitude and the inner strength to be able to stand and face whatever stimuli and stress comes at us and be able to be whole, secure, connected, and push back. And I think hope as entrained or preached or taught helps us become better humans. And I think Personally, that's the most important thing. Now, that's what I took out of all my studies of all the different religions. And I looked at it from a psychological point of view with act therapy and positivity therapy or positive psychology. All of them connect to this idea of hope. And hope is that things can be better. And all I have to do is keep going. The land of milk and honey is just through there. And it gives us resilience. And it gives us the ability to know that within us is the power to be better. And this does not have to overcome us. So if there's any one thing out of all of the the stuff we've spoken about in these seven episodes, if I can give anyone the thought that hope is attainable and that they need to connect to it and imagine difference. And if they can maintain their hope, everything can become better. And that's my favorite thought out of everything we do. Because when you were talking about those eight tenants in life and you called them stressors, they're not stressors. They are stimuli and they are things. And they only become stressors if your hope and your resilience and your resources will not move you through the process to adapt to those things. If we think about wealth or a lack of wealth, right? So again, I already said that someone gets a huge amount of money. Too much wealth can be a stressor. You and I might not view it that way. Too little wealth can be a stressor. However, I had a patient this week. I spoke to him yesterday. He comes from Cambodia and he's a refugee from the Pol Pot regime. Now he's been back there and he's done charitable humanitarian work to try and make it better. And he was telling me yesterday about these people in the middle of nowhere in the jungles. They have zero money from yours or my point of view. They have zero wealth. They don't have a Porsche or a house in the tenants. And they're completely happy. They are joyous. They are connected with their community group. They make food and they share it. And they're in the mud and they've got mud-dogged houses with thatched roofs, But they're happy. And they don't view stress in the same way. Now, one of the biggest problems that I see from a spiritual, emotional perspective is we are taught, along with that guilt, to want, that we are empty and we need a something, a cup, a thing, to fill that empty space, rather than connecting and going, I'm enough by myself, no amount of stuff, no materialism will fill it. And I think one of the big things that those people in Cambodia, in the jungles, have is they are not entrained to believe that they are empty vessels that needs filling with us something. They connect to their fellow man. If they need help, someone will put their hand up and be there walking beside them and they're connected and they are resilient and they are whole. And that is one of the most beautiful things we can imagine. And that's the benefit of socialization. Hence, Ultimately, I loved. that. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <Isn't> it? <laughs>
0: well, it was the favorite episode for a lot of people in our organization. Taylor, our podcast producer, said that was her favorite episode when she was to right. it. But it's interesting. I love everything you just said about that because we're going to circle back to spirituality in the end, but really you've covered it perfectly there. In 2018, I attended a longevity conference in Sardinia, which is one of the blue zones. Yeah. And we had Ben Greenfield there talking about all these life hacks. And Sardinia is a place where they have something like, you know, ridiculous amount. 40% of people live to over 100.
1: They do do indeed.
0: Interestingly, 87% of the people that live over 100, 87.2% are female. And that's another story for us to cover on estrogen and uh, testosterone and what have you. But Jay Shetty. Uh, stood up on the last day and he had an expert with him. And they also had some case studies of people that live in Sardinia. And they came down to the number one reason why they were living to over 100 is because of the way they managed stress or viewed stress or the lack of stress, whatever it is. And the number one reason why they could manage stress most effectively is that they had a deep faith. So we had all these scientists talking about what they ate and how much they slept and, you know, the sunshine and all the seven S's we've been talking about. I agree. But I thought what Jay Shetty on the last day just wrapped it all up. And he said, at the end of the day, this deep faith that they have in their religion, which was, I think, Catholicism or Christian, they just had this attitude that no matter what happens, God's got my back. And even if I die then I'm going to a better place. So they had this view that nothing was bad. Even the bad was good.
1: Yeah. I wow. have a slightly different take on it. I've looked at a lot of that stuff and I've looked at all the different people. Some people are coming out and saying, oh, it's because they largely eat only vegetables and the blue zones are eating fish and vegetables and no red meat. and Everyone's got their opinion on it. My take on that, because I agree with the faith, but I'm still going to come back to the word connectedness. Okay? Yes. And the reason why I'm going to use the word connectedness, because it's connectedness to God or Allah or Vishwan or whomever, right? But those people do not do well when they are disconnected from their fellow man Hello and man. they do not live. Now, I'll give you a personal example of this. Yes. My grandparents both lived till over 90. Okay. My grandmother died at about 93 and my grandfather died about ninety. Five, no, might be 90 and about 95. Okay, he was 93, I think, when my grandmother died. Now, originally, I did not think they liked one another because they bickered all the time. <laughs> yes, yes. It's, now, like it's,
0: a couple, nice. it's like the couple from Everybody Loves Raymond, the old couple, if you remember them.
1: <laughs> they bickered, but they loved um, each other. Yeah. And my grandmother, unfortunately, had a heart condition and it wasn't appropriately treated. And she died where she might have been safe if they determined to operate. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. Yeah. My grandfather was beautifully, appropriately upset and it was hard and he did okay for a while. And then he went downhill and he slowly declined and his, his mental health declined and his cognitive sharpness declined. And the connectedness of you know, that being together 70 years plus, right? Yes, yes. I remember going to their golden wedding anniversary, etc., etc., And they connected. And again, while I was young and had no emotional IQ, I didn't understand how that developed the relationship and the, the sparring and the stimulus that kept them operating well. But without the connectedness, my grandfather, who was still at that time in robust health, started to decline. Now, they were both people of faith. My grandmother was a devout woman who absolutely went to church several times a week. It wasn't a lack of faith, so to speak. Again, my grandfather also was devout, but in a a different way. He still went downhill without the people. And so, My take on the the blue zones in Sardinia is that it's not enough to just have faith. If I leave you in a field with a strong belief in God will provide, you will invariably still decline because human beings need connectedness. We need the village. We feel insecure by ourselves. The number one stress to a human being is not a lack of money, a lack of food, or otherwise it's disconnectedness the lack of love it is it is absolutely that if we want to threaten someone traditionally we threaten them with excommunication you are expelled from our group you are no longer safe you are no longer sacrosanct fend for yourself be gone that is what humans have done as the largest punishment forever and that's you see that playing out now with
0: cancel culture, right? That is entirely destroys people, destroys people.
1: Correct. So while I totally agree that these people had absolute faith. What they also had is they sat and they played checkers and backgammon and, and those other things. And yes, while there is a difference between men and women, but you know, you've know you seen the, the pictures of what men do, including having the ladder on the side of the building. It's no wonder men die sooner. There's, there's some really smart reasons for that. We're just not as sharp upstairs, I think, compared to women. <laughs> I'm gonna look at that and go, I'm not doing that. That's a dumb idea. Yes. <laughs> Good point connectedness love and being together still I think is the most important thing not just faith faith gives us hope faith gives us a belief in the next thing and you can still have that but being isolated for most people will tend to add a underlying level of stress what happens when you sleep at night and you're alone and there's no one around you for a long, long distance. And there's monsters out there. Your brain becomes more vigilant. So when we do that, we start not sleeping as well. And as we've spoken about, when you don't sleep deeply and restfully, you start to decline. Okay. Isolation is the most dangerous stress for all of us, bar nothing.
0: It's interesting because when my family lived on acreage three years ago, yes, my daughter was having trouble sleeping. Yeah. We moved into the city three years ago and she started sleeping through the night. She's the happiest she's ever been. And she said, dad, I love hearing car horns. I love hearing the garbage truck once a week. I love hearing the neighbors closing their doors. And it's because you have that energy. This is why people like to live in cities. It's the energy of other people, which is why in that last episode we talked about, you said the worst thing you can do during a pandemic is isolate people. It drops their immune system, increases their fear factor, and then they're caught in a circle of more fear, lower immunity, more fear, lower immunity. I agree. Yeah. And like you said offline earlier, like if we hadn't been told, if there was no information being spread about the dangers of COVID, I wonder how many people would have reacted a lot better to
1: catching the virus. I think there's a degree of information that needed to be out there. I think we needed to know that there was a virus, that it was pretty hard on your immune system, we needed to be a bit cleaner, we needed to be careful with things, but we didn't need this 24-7 fear cycle, or it, it's what has been referred to as fear porn, you know. It had numbers and flashing red, and there's this many cases and that many deaths. And I don't know that that was a healthy way for people's psyches to tolerate. And all it did was create separation and separation. And you, you could have the thing, and maybe you're going to kill me. and, ah! And people got very threatened by regular human contact. Little do they know that the number one thing that harms an immune system, that harms people's health and well-being is that behavior. Now, obviously, I point out that there is a normal degree of clean hygiene sense to be dealt with in a viral infectious disease. And I'm not dismissing that. Of course, if you're sick, though, you
0: can isolate. You're sick. I don't want to pass it on to you. People did that anyway. Correct. Yes, so we did that. We protected others.
1: I think one of the benefits of actually telling that to people these days, though, is in the past, people would do the harden up. I've got the flu. I'm just going to get in there and, it's, and spread it around the office a whole lot. So one <laughs> side of it is we've been a bit better at managing our let's not spread it to everyone sort of thing. And I, I, haven't,
0: I, seen, I haven't seen that
1: Codrell Soldier on commercial in a while. <laughs> thank goodness. One of the things I've always hated in the world is we have... On commercial television, you have it flu season, so it's Benadryl and Coldral and all those things. Yeah. And then as soon as it kind of gets to September, October, it must be antihistamine season. You know, like, we don't have flu anymore. It's marketing fear of things to people to sell a product not actually because it's useful now it might be useful i'm not saying that they they don't work i'm just saying that instead of trying to do things to boost people's health and well-being now what boosts people's health and well-being it's connectedness it's socializing yeah, yeah. socialising, <laughs> sleep sunshine, and exactly it's all the things we've talked about yes. it's having faith it is having hope that the world is a better place. The biggest problem that I've seen with a lot of the patients coming through my practice is people don't have the same degree of hope anymore. They don't believe that it's going to be better. Like if we get really dangerous at this moment, we've got an election coming up this weekend. Right? People don't believe that their government will actually do better things for them, no matter which ones we get voted in, is what I hear from people at this moment. They are going, well, it doesn't really matter who I vote for. My uncle sat there and said to me, what's my vote gonna do? We're gonna get someone, they're not gonna do anything for our own good, and they're gonna do whatever they want anyway. I'm like, that's a terrible attitude. You need to vote and do something, at least count.
0: Yeah, it's the same attitude everywhere. So everyone will end up voting for the best of the worst lot. Yes. Really? Yeah. See,
1: that's part and parcel of the negativity of what our election campaigns are, which instead of talking about how to make our society better and how to grow us and have hope and fill people with hope and a positive message, all we've got is dump the liar and it won't be easy under Albanese. And everyone's playing the personality. No, we are not, we're doing negative and negative takes away hope from people. And this, again, disconnects us, it makes us feel isolated, and it makes us unwell in a mind, heart, spirit sort of way. Well, fear
0: is a great tool for government, for the church. Over the centuries, fear has been an incredible tool to scare people into, you know, hellfire was created by the church to scare people into cooperation. And idea of heaven and hell and governments now use fear to justify war and preemptive strikes and we can go down that philosophical path but let's acknowledge that fear is spread for commercial interests for political interests and we need to be conscious of that because fear causes a huge spike in in our stress levels that is
1: the key stressor because that is what actual harmful stress is for the body it's fear it's chronic anxiety because what they do is they activate parts of your immune system because with fear and anxiety something is going to get me so i need to pump my system up to deal because traditionally something getting me was either an infection or a wound from someone something trying to kill me
0: and that's why now i want to talk about why stress is important Mm because I want to talk about, and I know you know this really well, the impact on our bodies, but just to wrap up the previous conversation, and that is that fear is the ultimate stressor. A feeling of disconnectedness makes us more fearful because together we are more powerful. We have less fear as a group. And hope neutralizes chronic anxiety caused by stress and fear. And if you lose hope, then that chronic anxiety then turns into depression. And chronic depression can lead to suicidal thoughts. And I've seen that loop. You know, the stress causes a bad mood. Chronic stress causes a bad temperament. And over time, the temperament turns into your personal reality, which is your personality, and then you become your fear. Correct. So we're going to now talk about the impact that stress has on our body. And this is stuff that will scare people. I, I know that. But it's so people can take it seriously. Because I know a lot of people, including myself in the past, we underestimate fear and how it creeps up on us. And we always think, no, I've got it under control. I've got it under control. You know, I'm working away here one more hour at work. Skip a meal, skip an exercise. Don't read to my kids. Don't spend time with my partner. Don't go out with my friends. And suddenly, stress goes slam. And then you're rocked with cortisol spikes at night, can't sleep, can't digest food. So people that have experienced these stresses will know exactly what I'm talking about. So that's why it's important that we discuss the why. And then we're going to go back right at the end and talk about how do we we keep this monster, this stress monster at bay. But tell me what happens to the body if we are under fear, under chronic stress? You know, just take us through the evolution of Fear and stress on our body and anxiety and depression. What happens to our bodies during
1: this? So, all of these things release chemicals to drive adaptation. Okay, that's the first and foremost thing. Some of those include adrenaline, noradrenaline, cortisol. Sometimes it will even be serotonin. And we're meant to be seeing an up spike in mood to try and tolerate what's going on. But the main drivers of response to threat are adrenaline noradrenaline and cortisol so cortisol in itself is an immediate survival response chemical it drives up your blood sugar so that you can punch the thing in the face and run away. So at a concept level, we should talk about the fact under things like Polyvagal Theory by Stephen Porges, there's four responses to stress. So what we have is level one is frontal lobe integration. So it means that you're in a good place, you've got good resources and you see a threat and you think your way through it. There is a thing coming at me, I will step to the side, no danger. Great. Okay. So that's when everything is working in our best favor. And that is what I'm always aiming for everyone to be operating in that state. They are in a pattern of what we'd call homeostasis. Their mind, body, spirit has the right level of resources that they can think what's going on and how to manage things. So that would be ideal. Then we step down into our level two, Our fight response. So this is looking at the different cognitive levels of the brain and we talk about these things like the big brain and the monkey brain and the reptilian brain etc right which people will have heard of depending on whose work they've been listening to and reading. But level two is a fight response. We get angry. We feel threatened. Our body responds by going, right, I'm going to punch that in the face, right? So it is a well-integrated functional response. And we get to see lots of that going on at this moment in time. We step down because we're less capable and we decompensate a bit further down the brainstem and we start doing a flight response. We want to go, shit, I can't deal with that. I'm going to run away from it. And phase four is absolutely what's called a reptilian brain response. It's the oldest, most inefficient manner of responding to threat that the human brain can do. It is breath-holding and playing possum, so to speak, right? So breath-holding... For
0: people that are just listening and not watching, (laughs) uh, you just curled up into a
1: ball, right? (laughs) Uh, Into a fetal position, pretend (laughs) me, save me, I'm in danger... And I'm going to hold my breath because traditionally with a reptile, if I play dead, Other creatures probably won't want to eat me because they're not carrion eaters. But a reptile has a really slow metabolism. It can cope with low oxygen for a really long period of time because it doesn't have the big brain on top that requires constant supply of oxygen. So when a human goes into breath-holding phase, they become anaerobic and acidic really, really quickly, okay? So that means that the brain doesn't work very well. And that's where the beginnings of brain fog start coming in. You're not actually thinking up here at the top brain. You're right down in the hindbrain in the lower areas. And the thinking slows down because it gets processed down the bottom first and then goes up from where instead of operating at 300 milliseconds, it's now taking you 400 milliseconds to make a decision. And slow decisions always end up with a worse outcome than a well thought out, big brain, 320 millisecond decision. So a holding breath phase, where you're in that fourth level of polyvagal collapse is I have no hope. My last possible ditch effort is fetal position, play dead. Hopefully the thing won't want me and leave me alone and go about hunting for something more interesting. That is a failure in the ability to adapt to your scenario. Now, for people thinking about it out in podcast land, that is where you have given up on your survival. There is no further thinking or responding. Your resources are gone and you're spent. That is the worst place to be. And invariably, if you think about it from a war point of view, that is when all of your brothers in arms, all of your trench mates are gone and there is no one to stand. With you. One of the reasons why services military corporations, so to speak, entrain brotherhood in their personnel is because it maintains a better fighting force. If you have a brother beside you that you can give your life for, and they will give their life for you, it makes you a stronger, more hopeful, capable person if you have no hope what's the point in doing what you're doing
0: yes yes
1: so that stepping down and decompensating changes the chemistry of how your brain and your body responds to threats coming at you if you can think your way through you don't raise up a very high adrenal cortisol level and therefore the price your body pays for things isn't as expensive. As you step down to two and three, it costs you more because cortisol and adrenaline are very inefficient burners of energy and resources. And what they do is they signal to your brain that you are under threat. Okay, There is a monster there to get me. I need to run away from it. Now, If you've just had a meal, your gut will not get the full gamut of blood supply and digestion because there's a monster that I've got to run away from. You don't kind of make a deal with the monster going, look, I've just had a three-course meal and a couple of glasses of wine. Hang on a tick, get back to me in four hours. You cool your heels over there. It's all good, you know. We'll do the running thing in a minute. We'll fight it out. No, the monster goes, we're doing it right now. So that fear-anxiety pattern has certain consequences in the nervous system that suppress digestive function, detoxification function, sexual function. Hence, chronic stress will cause loss of libido because to be intimate with someone requires that you suspend threat. You're not paying attention to the outside world when you're in the horizontal mumbo.
0: Yeah, that's why they say it's fight or flight. The opposite is rest and digest, feed and
1: breed, right? Right. Absolutely. Yep. So, what occurs is it changes all your hormones because, again, you don't say to the monster, hang on a sec, I've just got to have a shag. I'll come back (laughs) to you in, in five minutes. You know, it doesn't happen that way. So, you suppress all unnecessary functions. Now, you don't need a personality, you don't need to be happy you need to fight or run. So personality costs energy. That costs you more serotonin. That serotonin might be better used to turn down pain in the body to cope with the fight that you're in. Because serotonin gets used by the body for multiple things. It's used to move the bowel motion. It's used to turn pain down. It's used to keep a personality intact and have happiness. So if it's going to cost you and you're in the fight of your life, guess what way that resource is being spent? So if that becomes endemic and chronic and always there, like ongoing divorce proceedings that are taking years to drag out, or we're stuck in a house in lockdown with someone who's abusive, chronic, chronic stress, digestion will start to fail, skin quality will start to fail. Now, when you're in those scenarios, cortisol and adrenaline are there to drive alertness. So the more alert you are, the more likely the monster is to not get me, okay? So what occurs is we sensitize our body to pain, and this is a spiraling loop. The less efficiently you sleep, the more sensitized to pain you are and the more sensitized to inflammation you become. The more inflammation and the more pain you have, the harder it is for you to go down into a deep state of sleep. The less you repair... The more damage you sustain, the more pain sensitization and the more chronic it becomes. Wow. It's a spiral okay? downwards. Yep. Absolutely. And so the idea is really, really smart. 100,000 years ago, you're running for your life from the monster, whether it was a person or a bear or whatever. If you went to sleep because you are alone, remember, this is isolationist. You are alone in that fight with that monster. There is no one there. And that's why I point out disconnectedness, isolation, aloneness is the greatest stressor, along with fear, obviously, but isolation breeds fear and anxiety so my take on it is the greatest stress is still loneliness isolation not being connected to things of whichever ilk disconnected from god for that matter will breed fear in people so what occurs though is you're running away from this bear and you can't sleep because as soon as you go to sleep the bear will get you won't it because there's no one to protect you so your brain starts spiking you with cytokines, interleukin-6, as we've spoken about in a previous podcast, which suppresses your production of serotonin. So your mood becomes less happy, carefree, and you get more sensitization to pain. And this drives more vigilance and more alertness so you don't sleep. So it is a design mechanism that the more chronic threat you're under, the more you learn to be under threat, the more fear you engender, the more anxiety, the more your brain believes that it needs to fear with your sleep, interfere with your immune system to keep raising that vigilance level. Because if you stop, you're going to
0: get eaten. Wow. So stress, (laughs) then, in a nutshell, makes you sick, slow and stupid.
1: Pretty much. That's a Beautiful summation. That's exactly what it does. Because when you're being threatened, your brain becomes, people talk about this idea of my memory has decreased. And it actually hasn't. It's just that it's changed its focus. What is it? Will it kill me? What is it? Will it kill me? What is it? Will it kill me? If it won't kill you, you pay it no attention. So you don't code it in to give it more data because you're hunting for the next thing You know that the monster is there. I just have to find it and deal with it or get away from it. So I change how I view things and reference them in my mind to, will it hurt me? Yes, no. If no, dump it. It is not worth the resources to keep storing that data long term when I'm still hunting for the monster that's going to get me.
0: Wow. Okay, I hope you are enjoying this episode on stress, which is the last S in our seven-part series and probably one of the most important for most of us. Now, we're going to stop the episode right there because next week we're going to bring you part two of stress and how it leads to anxiety And how anxiety over time can lead to depression. And more importantly, we're going to dive into the toolkit that you will need to stop stress from becoming anxiety and to stop anxiety before it comes and leads to unhappiness and for some people, depression. And if you are listening right now, I want to tell you that if you are feeling any of these negative emotions to do with stress, it is all reversible. Don't give up hope. The toolkit and the tool set that we're going to arm you with and what my friend Dr. Scott Wustenberg is going to share with you is going to be empowering and it's going to give you a sense of control when you feel like you are out of control. Stress isn't something that is part of our human nature. It is not part of our innate quality. Our natural response to stress is, but over time, that has been distorted. So stay tuned for next week's episode. And again, thank you, Scott, for sharing your thought leadership on this. So thank you again for listening to this week's episode. And as always, live consciously, my friends. Thank you.